friends, I'm Stacy, And I'm Melissa. And we're teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and our review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired a curiosity of information well after the story is finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. joined us today for the Curious Reader podcast. This is our third full-length episode. We are remote today, separated by a snowstorm. We're usually at the Gottstown Public Library recording together. So this is our first Zoom podcast, Stacy. Welcome to 2020. <laughs> I am very thankful for the technology, Melissa, that allows us to keep on trucking. So today we are discussing A Song of Race and Ruin, the young adult book by Roseanne A. Brown. This fantasy fiction book steeped in West African folklore and culture packed a punch in fascinating information and in page number. At just a bit over 460 pages, I was scared at tackling a book of this length, especially when fantasy is not a go-to genre for me. But I'm elated to say that this book did not disappoint. It is a complex, plot-driven, full of riddles, mystery, twists, and a touch of romance. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to wait until August for the sequel, Melissa. Yeah, this book actually helped me look at fantasy in a new way. As you know, Stacey, just like you, fantasy is not my preferred genre, but doing research or lateral reading, as we call it in school, and I'll explain that more in a second, um, doing the research greatly helped me appreciate it a bit more. As I read through A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, I looked up words that I didn't know or phrases that were new to me. Often when we read, we ignore words that we don't understand. We're taught to understand things in context. But when we are reading, we can miss a lot by not figuring out what words really mean. So I encourage my students as they're reading to also look up the words that they're reading. And that's what lateral reading means, to be reading and also looking up what you're reading and keeping your mind open and questioning things. So we actually chose this book because we knew it related to West African culture, but the connections to real life are deep and fascinating. I really would not have dug so deeply into it if it weren't for this podcast, but I'm so glad that I did. While some words in the book were made up, others were terms that are firmly tied to cultures and literature that are different from what many of us know. This book discusses the importance of, here we go again, here's my long list of oral history and griots in West Africa. It discusses caste systems and politics, diaspora, riddles, magic, obasum, which are gods, symbolism, necromancy. That's kind of an interesting aspect that we're not going into. (laughs) Architecture, specifically garden courtyards called riads, mythology, comets, comets, fashion, jellabas, and music. Melissa, I also found that I was looking up words or phrases. Some words like griot, I was able to figure out was a traveling storyteller or magician or poet because of the context. But I still ended up looking up the definition, and I'm glad that I did because the full definition explained that the primary purpose was to maintain a tradition of oral history in parts of West Africa. And that was an important detail in the story, oral history. So I'm also glad that you mentioned that while this is 
um, that while this genre is fantasy, there is a connection to real life, as that will be something I expand on when I give my summary and review of the book. So there was a lot to dig into. So much rich culture. I almost feel that I could use another read through just to absorb it all. And I'm sure that the themes that you researched and and are going to share, Melissa, will just further spark my curiosity to know more. Speaking of themes, what will our listeners glean from this episode? So as I've done in past episodes, I have chosen three themes to highlight. Two themes that serve as threads throughout the book and that are closely related are music and oral history. I focus on these to highlight West African culture, and I also provide some videos and articles about each in a Padlet. That's becoming a thing for us. I love providing those little extras in the Padlet so people can go and learn about about cultures um, from there. Um, So that's going to be available in our show notes. Another theme I latched onto was the idea of celebration tied to the heralding of a comet. I thought this fit especially well into a December podcast as we celebrate the holiday season. I was talking about this book with a space science teacher at my school, and he made the connection from comets to Christmas. Um, He had, and I'll talk more about this later, but he had mentioned something about the star of Bethlehem. Um, So as I was putting the show together, things started to fit in my mind, like, oh, we have a holiday theme. (laughs) It's fun to talk to everyone you know about what you're reading, because they often make connections that are not apparent to you. Yes. This month, I was also happy that our music teacher at Goffstown High School, Josh DeRocher, made himself available for an interview. We talked about musical instruments, history, and about music as a celebration. And we're including clips from that interview in our podcast today. All right. I can't wait to hear those clips. And I'm glad we get to um, bring those experiences to our listeners. So thank you so much, Melissa, for seeking out uh, those people that provide those interviews for us. That's great. nice to have people in the community participating in this. I really love that. Yeah, I do too. I really do. You know, as I was reading A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, I knew this book would make for another great podcast discussion. There's a lot here. And many of the things I loved about this book are touched on in your three themes, Melissa. So why don't I dive in and give a quick summary of the plot? But first, Melissa, you had a tagline or a quote that you found somewhere about this book. Can you tell us about that? Yes, yes, yes. I thought this was so great. I saw this quote in an interview with the author. Um, It said the book was being marketed as, what if Aladdin and Jasmine had to kill each other? (laughs) And I thought that was a very interesting way to look at this story. That that makes me chuckle because when I first started reading this book, actually subconsciously, I had visions of Aladdin and Jasmine. So that's so fitting. Um, Well, this story is told through the vantage point of two characters, The first chapter opens with Malik. It is the beginning of the Solstatia Festival, a week-long celebration that happens every 50 years. It is a celebration of the founding of Zirin, a tribute to the ancestors of the Sultana, and where seven champions, one to represent each of the patron deities, face off against each other in three challenges to produce a winner that would reveal which god was meant to rule over the kingdom during the next era. And so he's traveling along with his two sisters, and they've made the journey from the mountain region of Eshran. They are refugees, carrying doctored papers for entrance, hoping that the Solstatia Festival would be an opportunity to find work and send money back home. And while the Eshran mountain region is part of the Zoran territories, the people of Eshra are looked down upon. See, Zoran may control every aspect of Eshran life down to who could live in which village, 
but the famed city itself had never been meant for Malik's people to enjoy. That's right um, from the story. But at the entrance to the walled city, chaos ensues. The papers are stolen, and Malik's younger sister is abducted by an evil spirit. And Malik makes a deadly deal with that tricky spirit. He needs to kill the princess by the end of the Solstatia Festival to save his sister or risk never seeing her again. Is your heart pumping already, Melissa? Yes, when, when Malik, and in my head I was saying Malik, but I think Malik makes more sense. When Malik's ah. younger sister spoke up and innocently moved toward the trickster, my heart did start pumping. And in my head I was saying, no, don't do it. Just like with our last book, remember? <laughs> we were, no. we were, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, my heart was pumping there too. I, I can vividly remember how I felt when I was sitting down and reading that part. So let's talk a little bit about um, Karina. She's the princess. Her mother is the Sultana, the queen of Zoran and its territories. Karina is a princess that doesn't really want to be the next queen. And actually she doubts her worthiness and believes everyone, including her mother, shares that same sentiment. Karina suffers her own chaos. The Sultana is unexpectedly assassinated and Karina is thrust into the role she never wants nor believes she can fulfill. She decides to dabble in some dark magic as well And she needs the beating heart of a king in order to resurrect her mother. Where will she find a king? Well, of course, by marrying the victor of the Solstatia competition. All of this takes place in the first few chapters of the book. The plot is moving at a lightning fast pace. And there are about 400 more pages that contain vengeance, backstabbing, surprising twists, and a touch of romance. Really just a touch. I don't think that there's too much at all in there. really plays a backdrop. And I'm not sure about you, Melissa, but because there was so much in the world building and in the plot and the various names for the characters, I often found myself a bit confused and I had to reread portions, but it certainly didn't stop me from reading it. And I'm glad that I persevered. I agree. I was often confused. And I think the addition of words that were new to me added to that confusion. The lateral reading definitely helped. I looked up new words and themes, which I don't usually do when reading fantasy. I also used an inquiry technique that I commonly use in research. I asked questions, which allowed me to delve deeper. I really changed how I read fantasy in order to create this podcast. But in the end, it made the story much more interesting and fun to read. I will never read fantasy the same way again. I think that I can even say that I now better understand how fantasy fiction works because of my research. Yeah, I paused a lot to look up words as well, far more than I have in any other book um, that I've read. And I agree, it also changed how I read fantasy. I had tried a fantasy fiction title actually a while back um, called Dark and Deepest Red uh, by Anna Marie McLemore. McLemore. I apologize if I butchered your last name. Sorry, Anna Marie. (laughs) (laughs) And it too had a lot of words describing um, Romani culture. And I put it down because I did not understand the words from context. Um, But I think I'm going to pick it back up And I'm going to start looking up those words and I'm going to have a new appreciation for fantasy and how to read it now. So moving on, because there is so much to dive into in our three themes, I'm just going to finish up by explaining my love towards these two characters, Malik and Karina. On the surface, these two seem to come from totally different spectrums, right? Malik, the refugee, he's of an oppressed people group, struggling for resources. He recognizes the disparities among the territories ruled by Zoran. And then there's Karina, 
living in opulence, shelter from what is really happening within the kingdom. She's privileged in education, resources, and status. But under that service, they have more similarities than differences. They both suffer from a feeling of inadequacy. Malik has a vulnerability and a softness to him that I loved seeing in the male character. He often wells up with tears, but he's admonished by his older sister for what is perceived as a weakness. He's not that macho man. But there's a line in the book that says, do not underestimate the strength it takes to be kind in a world as cruel as ours. There is a kindness to Malik that, Malik that is beautiful, but he does doubt himself. And Karina doubts herself too. She's sassy and determined, but she recognizes that those around her see her as mediocre, not fit for the throne. And she allows that narrative to interfere with her relationships, I think especially with her mother. Um, and finally, both Malik and Karina are plagued with memories from their past that manifest themselves in physical ways. Malik suffers from an anxiety disorder, and he uses coping mechanisms that initially are very unhealthy. Severe migraines follow Karina's memories, which are fragmented throughout the book, but they are completely revealed in the end. She too has unhealthy coping mechanisms as she tries to reconcile her pain with her memories. Brown, the author, does a wonderful job writing about memories, pain, and mental health. And these are those real-life connections um, that I was saying earlier that I wanted to touch upon. So, phew, that was a lot there. And we have even more. On to our themes. So one thing that you were talking about is basically the growth of these characters. And it it strikes me now as I'm thinking about it that the author did such a good job of uh, depicting teen characters who have room for growth. They're not perfect people and they are, are um, unsure of themselves. And I think she did that really well. So our themes, the three themes I promised I would touch upon at the beginning of this podcast are music, storytelling, and symbolism. So I'm going to dive right in and begin by focusing on music. As I mentioned early on, this book gave me so much to research and reflect upon. There's way too much to discuss here. But as I was putting together my thoughts for this podcast, I began to think of Karina and Malik as sort of superheroes with their powers grounded deeply in culture. I found this angle fascinating and I decided that's the direction I was going to go. So first I realized that music is Karina's superpower. Chapter two opens with Karina and her instrument and the chapter starts like this. And I just love the the language and the way this author writes. So this is a direct quote. The dancing seal was one of those establishments that was both older and dirtier than it had any right to be, with a questionable layer of grime covering every visible surface as well as the staff. (laughs) However, the food was great and the entertainment even better. So that's the quote. And this is the first inkling that we have that entertainment will be part of this book. The chapter goes on to set the scene of Karina challenging a bard. Both play instruments and sing stories. And it reminded me of that song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Do you know that one, Stacey? I time? do know that one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so here she is with the big challenge. Yes. yes. I have to say this part of the book is where I was hooked. And it happens early on. There was something about this scene that totally took over my senses. Here is Karina, disguising herself as just a common girl seated among the other revelers, you know, mainly travelers and merchants. And she's listening to the bard play. She assesses him as talented, but kind of sleazy. And one thing leads to another. And now they are in a musician's duel, allowing the response of the audience to decide the winner. The bard picks the song, a mournful tune that everyone knew. It was a story of how the first sultana battled her own husband, ushering in Karina's family's rule over Zoran. The bard gives a soulful rendition. 
The audience has tears from the story. But Karina, she takes that old battered mood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I knew it earlier. Now, like, what is that word? Well, it's spelled O U D, so it's confusing. <laughs> But Karina, she takes that old battered oud and she brings the house down. She jumps on a table. She ups the tempo. Each time she gets to another verse, she sings in the native language of each of the territories. She's really including diversity of the audience to experience the beauty and the sorrow of the song. Then I sought out a YouTube video to find out exactly what the oud was. I listened to the musician play it. It was magnificent. And honestly, when I heard it, the tone, the sound, it fully captured that scene. Uh, Roseanne A. Brown's lyrical writing and the sound of the oud brought that scene full circle in my mind. And I heard that there may be a movie in the making. And that soon will that scene will be a highlight for me. I wonder how hard it is to find people who play ouds these days. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Look out on, on YouTube, though. There was some, some beautiful playing there. Yeah, and I think our Padlet has somebody playing an oud, possibly. Awesome. Some of the instruments anyway. So I love how this book introduces us to West African culture. Right from the start, Brown weaves in traditional African instruments and makes it clear how important storytelling is in this fantasy culture that reflects the reality of African culture. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I spoke with musician and one of our Goffstown High School music teachers, Josh DeRocher, about the instruments in this book to help us understand them. I want to say that my interview with Mr. DeRocher was fascinating. He was so easy to talk to. We work together, but we don't have a chance to talk very much. We reflected a bit on music making and storytelling tradition by discussing blues and bluegrass that are native to the United States. It's kind of interesting the way when you do research and start thinking beyond the book, you might go way beyond the book. Blues and bluegrass has nothing to do with this book, but it was it was a fascinating related conversation. Every culture uses music as a form of expression and passes it through generations with a pinch of stories and history. One of my college professors actually specialized in folk music in Appalachia, and it was an interesting part of an oral history class that I took. So there's a there's again, I'm getting off track, but it's all related. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Mr. Jarosher and I meandered a bit down this American path and talked a bit about the blues and even the British invasion, but then we refocused on West Africa. I identified three instruments that appeared in the book and I asked him to discuss them. The instrument instruments are the jum, jumbe. I'm trying to remember how he pronounced it, jumbe. He has great familiarity with that instrument. They use it in the band apparently. Um, and this instrument's introduced on page one, showing right off the bat how important music will be to this book. And then the oud, Karina's instrument, and then something called the balafon, which her friend Tembe plays later on. Um, Mr. DeRocher begins by telling us how he first learned about many different instruments, and he makes an 80s reference, which I appreciated as someone from his generation. He talks about his keyboard and how his keyboard in the 80s made different sounds, and that's how he first learned about many instruments. Um, notice yeah, I had a listen. keyboard like that. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't realize they could do all those sounds. So notice as you listen that he also talks about how he had to do a little research, and you know that I love that, Stacey. <laughs> yes, you do. And actually I do too. I've, I loved researching for this book. There was so much and, and I think it just brought it all together. So the research was a must and necessary. Yeah, I want to learn a lot more about West, West Africa. I put aside some videos in our discussion notes that I, I plan to watch. Some of them were quite long, um, but it dives into the culture. So 
take a minute. Let's listen to, to Mr. DeRocher. Uh, the, the djembe I'm most familiar with. Um, the other two, the oud I remember uh, at growing up, my dad um, was very interested in, in music and eclectic musical instruments. Uh, and also he had this real interest in technology. So I was a kid in the 80s, um, you know, typing book reports on a, on a Commodore VIC-20 because, because we had one. Um, uh, and, and so I remember a lot of, of world instruments because they showed up on a keyboard. Um, because my dad, oh, this cool new keyboard, look at all the cool sounds that it has. And so, um, I had to, I had to look up Oud on, on the internet to, to remind myself, I, I said, I think it's a string instrument. Um, uh, so, but that's my, my familiarity with it is I had heard a reproduction of its sound. Um, but yeah, it looks like it's, it's very similar to a lute or a guitar for, for people who aren't as familiar with world instruments. It, it's most related to, to that. Um, the balafon I had never heard of. So that was really exciting to look that up and go, whoa, what a cool instrument. It's sort of like what, what we think of as a xylophone, but made out of natural, uh, you know, bones. And, um, and I saw, I don't know if it's traditional, but I, I saw a picture of somebody wearing one. It, it's the keyboard sort of came out, um, and they played that. So, which is kind oh. of eighties, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Um, the djembe, this, this movement, uh, in, in my, in my field of multicultural music being important for all of us to, um, jump into, um, as a, as a choral musician, as a choral director, the djembe is sort of like the, the go-to, we're going to sing a song and chorus from Africa and we need to add a drum to it. I need a djembe. <laughs> so pretty familiar with, um, with that instrument, but uh, the other two, I had to, I had to do a little research. Music plays such an important role in all of our lives. And Mr. DeRocher had me reflecting on what instruments are and what role music plays, even making music with our iPhones, connecting history and contemporary music making. The historical importance of music throughout civilization cannot be overstated, but sometimes our connection to music is personal. And sometimes we're lucky enough to have an item that connects us directly to history and our ancestors. So for me, my father played the accordion. So to me, I, I, you know, just like Katrina's father played the oud and was passed on to her, the accordion was passed on to my sister, who's a musician. So um, I hope our audience thinks about some of the items in their lives that, that get passed down and the meaning behind them, especially if they have an instrument in this case. So for Karina, her oud was not just something she played, but it carried a piece of her heart. Yeah, I think Karina describes the oud as irreplaceable, not just in the physical sense, but in an intensely emotional way as well. Yes, and when something happened to it, and I won't give it away here, it was a strong symbol of her struggle. And in my conversation with Mr. DeRocher, he just uh, he addressed how an instrument might tie us to the past and make us remember something bigger than ourselves. So please enjoy his clip right now. As a as a piece of, <laughs> it's funny modern technology. Um, the the organ at the church where I work was designed specifically for that space in 1867. I want to say the church was built in 1867. The organ was installed maybe in, in 68 or 69. Um, so, so it's, it's right around its 150th birthday. Um, and, and I took a class a few years ago when I was working on my master's degree and it was about, um, uh, technology and, and music and the intersection. And, and one of the kind of just philosophical debates we had was the professor said, um, you know, what, what, what do you, uh, 
what's the definition of a musical instrument? And she was really getting at all these different apps where people are playing music on their phones. And there was a really popular one a few years ago um, with whatever iPhone had a, had a newly specialized advanced microphone. You could, uh, do you know what an ocarina is? No. Uh, it's, it's like a little flute instrument made out of clay. It's very basic. It only has four holes. And so you can kind of hold it like this. Um, you, you blow into it and you can play a, a scale. Um, so anyway, these, these developers in California developed uh, an Ocarina app. Um, the name of the developers is Smule, and they've actually, now they've developed several music apps like this. But anyway, short story long, you can hold your phone and you blow into the microphone and and manipulate the the holes that are virtually on your keyboard and the sound of a beautiful ocarina comes out as you're playing it. And, and so her whole thing was, is that really an instrument? And so people had all these, these things they wanted to say, well, if you're not really blowing into it, if you're not really creating the music yourself, then it's not really an instrument. No, I'm not buying it. And the Sunday after that conversation at the time, I was, I was just substituting, I was filling in for the regular organist. And the thing they say about pipe organs is if you can get past how hard they are to play. So if you can get past the mechanics of the instrument, you can really make beautiful music. And this piece of technology from 1868, um, which, you know, I've got one foot over here. I've got one foot over here. I've got one hand on this keyboard, one hand on this keyboard. And in the middle of a thing, in order to change the sound, I literally have to pull things out and put them back. It's like, you know, watching a video of an old time, like, railroad engineer. <laughs> so really and truly, if I can, if I can uh, overcome the mechanics of it, um, and then all of a sudden I go from this beautiful sound of like a flute choir to an oboist, uh, and the fact that that was developed 150 years ago, um, and it has mostly, our instrument uh, at the church in Goffstown has, has mostly been unchanged in, in that time. Um, so I said, if that, if that, can be a musical instrument and people refer to the pipe organ as the king of musical instruments. If that is, then you know what? So is my smartphone. <laughs> so uh, it was an interesting connection for me. Um, and, and when I, when I go and play that instrument uh, weekly, I, I do really feel like this connection to uh, ancestors, forebears that, that came before me. And it's this, this nice feeling knowing that that uh, investment 150 years ago is still making music for the people in our town. And actually now that we are in the pandemic and we're doing things virtually, it's people, you know, um, all over. So I don't know if I went way off of where you were hoping I would go with that, but. Oh, that was fabulous. And, and I was just thinking that you are part of that historical tradition. Now you're the man who played during COVID, right? (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So then if music is Karina's superpower, storytelling is Malik's superpower. As we already mentioned, storytelling and music go hand in hand. This can be seen as a symbol of the connection between Karina and Malik. I found an article called Communication, Oral and Nonverbal Traditions in a reference book entitled World Eras. As a librarian, I felt like I had to tell you where I found this. <laughs> <laughs> Citation. <laughs> So I, I like, I, it's a long quote, but I, I thought it was really good. So I'm going to read the whole quote to you. It says, long before the 8th century, when Muslim scholars began writing histories of West Africa in Arabic, the ancient kingdoms of West Africa relied on the oral tradition to pass on their histories. These accounts of villages and clans and genealogies of ruling families were kept by people now known as griot, a French word meaning traditional minstrel. 
Um, I, I want to point out that French words came to West Africa when the French colonized the area. And again, see the Padlet for more on griots. Um, but according to the World Eras text, griots served as oral historians, storytellers, poets, dancers, musicians, and actors, teaching the clan its history and keeping the memories of their people. Um, I also want to point out that Brown in an interview talks about how they use this kind of storytelling more than the written word in West Africa to keep their history. And sometimes it makes it difficult to figure out what the real history is. That interview is also in our Padlet. So continuing on with, with the uh, reference book, uh, explanation. Each clan or village had its own griot. Royal families often hired griots to preserve their personal stories and events of their dynasty. A griot acted as his ruler's main aide. When messengers arrived at a court, they gave their messages to the griot. The griot also taught the princes, led court musicians, and conducted ceremonies. So they were really, really important to yeah. the culture. According to the same article, griots often used drums as they communicated their stories. So right there, it's connecting the music and the storytelling. Roseanne Brown, our author, is from Ghana, which is in West Africa. Much of the information that I found about instruments and storytelling relates directly to Ghana, which also has a connection to the American slave trade, which is an interesting aside. Um, Ghana's history is deep and rich, um, and it's worth researching more on your own. Whew. <laughs> Whew, yes. I, you know, I think I just want to point in here about, um, about the author, um, Roseanne Brown. I, you know, this is another one of uh, those books that it's in own voices. And, and I think the rich history, you know, we, we could do this research and find out more about it, but I think really that beautiful writing, um, that fully encompasses all of this culture really can only come from somebody who, um, had those stories passed down to them and uh and that that is just something you know own voices authors and i'm glad we're seeing so many more of them i'm actually reading americana now which i think was one of those the first to make the push yeah. in that direction um it was written in 2013 and yeah only she can tell tell the right. story that she tells so my third part finally symbol symbolism is prominent throughout the book. And I actually studied symbolism for two years in college. I received a stipend to study gravestone iconography. So this was something that was really important to me. I two years? Yeah, I was actually paid wow. a stipend. And then they sent me to Caltech University to present a paper on it. So Woo. imagery and symbolism are, are really close to my heart. So I wanted a good definition of symbolism. I, I know what it means, but I wanted something succinct. So I consulted our schools. Here we go again. Gale in Context online co collection. Are you listening, my students? <laughs> For definition to help me explain this concept to those who may not be familiar with it. So symbolism is the use of one thing to represent an image or concept. A symbol is a person, animal, place, object, or event that has meaning in itself, but that also represents another concept. And this book is dripping with symbolism, symbols. Um, but I chose to focus on three. Three is my favorite number, by the way. <laughs> First, we find in here symbols as parables, which are a kind of morality tale. This kind of symbol is specifically related to literature and the stories of the hyena within this book are an example of this. So the, the big story of the hyena is in chapter 20, 
The, cha- the champions are challenged to tell a story that will captivate the hearts of their audience. And then Malik steps up and says, quote, I'm going to tell you a hyena tale. And then the author tells us, quote, hyena tales were so common that unless one was as gifted as the most talented griot, it was a waste of time using them to impress anyone. And that got me intrigued about them. Why are these stories so common in this culture? What is their purpose? In Malik's version of the traditional tale, and of course, in the end, he captivates them with it, and he uses his magic to bring the story to life. Hyena searches for a place to sleep. Someone bumps into her and steals her bag, and then she needs to prove that the bag is hers. But in the end, the book says, when the true contents of the bag were revealed, Hyena simply shrugged. Those aren't my wonders. I guess that is his bag. And then she went on her way. (laughs) Yeah, I did a bit of research on hyena symbolism. There was a lot out there, you know, meaning and animal power and folklore and myth. And um, I think when we think of hyena, the animal, you know, we think of of something that's dirty and not smart creature. And we may have a view that's shown in just the animation of Disney's Lion King. Uh, But I found that in folklore, hyenas have a reputation for witchcraft or dark magic. And when hyenas are in dreams, it represents that the person is not tapping into their full potential. They aren't using their energy appropriately, or they aren't using their gifts to their advantage. And when one encounters a hyena, you need to look around you. Something needs immediate attention. It may be something bad that's befalling you, or maybe you had a mission that you are letting that mission languish and you need to refocus. And I saw all of these aspects of the hyena in this complete story, um, the, the whole book itself and the many times that hyena was talked about or encountered. I think it's important to keep these things in mind when we read about uh, the Solstatia tale and how the hyena aided Bahia to defeat the Kenwen Empire. When we read about the people Malik and Karina meet and the instances or happenings around those encounters. And finally, the manifestation of unrecognized magic and what it means to those who start to harness it. So I'd be remiss, as we talk about symbols, not to mention wraiths and ruin, since they are in the title. The wraiths are the dead that appear in the underworld and serve as a reminder to our main characters of what could happen to them. I don't know if we mentioned that, that they traveled through the underworld, which was one of my favorite parts of the book, actually. I like that, too. The ruin is the destruction of the beautiful kingdom of Zorani, Um, They are vibrant literary portrayals of evil, but they also serve as symbols of what is at stake in the journey that Karina and Malik are taking. I just think the symbols wrap themselves in symbols and had different meanings, many, many layers of meanings. Yeah. The second type of symbol we find in here is um, visual art symbols, iconography, like my gravestones. The tattoo was the one that most stood out to me. It's an art form that is particularly reliant on symbolism. People decorate their skin with something that's meaningful to them. And in this story, Malik's tattoo is a sign of his lack of freedom. Mm. It's not a symbol that he wants, but it does symbolize his debt to the obasum. He's actually marked. And every time he needs to do something, he feels his mark moving. Yeah. So in my research, I also learned that special symbols in Ghana are called adinkra. Um, I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but uh, it was mentioned over and over. So I thought it was important to, to bring up, but that's another way my research could go if, if I were interested. 
That's why we said there was so much here. (laughs) There really was. And I think this podcast is going to be longer than our normal one. I could have focused on any of these symbols and more, but I want to bring our attention finally to the comet as a symbol. The comet in this story, Bahia's Comet, appears only once every 50 years. And on page four, it says that Bahia's Comet, named for the first Sultana of Zoran, would appear in the sky for an entire week, marking the end of the current event and the beginning of the next. During this time, the Zorani had a festival known as Solstasia, where seven champions, one to represent each of the patron deities, would face three challenges. They would know which god was meant to rule over the next error by the winning champion. So the comet in this book is a sign of new beginnings. Comets have always been strong symbols in our culture for inspiration as well as terror and evil. They're a strong sign of spiritualism, and Bahia serves as a strong focal point that clearly shines light on the mysticism, spirituality, and magic of a song of wraiths and ruin. So I think the Bahia Comet's a good way to end our podcast by bringing this around to the celebration of the season we are now in. And (laughs) when I read a book, I like to talk to everyone I know about it. Again, that might be the librarian thing in me. I don't know. But speaking with uh, space science teacher Mike Veyu at my high school, I learned that some believe that the Star of Bethlehem was actually a comet. I had no idea. I I never heard that. Yeah, it was fascinating. So I want to bring our discussions back to music with both comets and music being related to the highlights of our Christmas season. So let's end this with a clip from my talk with Josh DeRocher. I asked him about how music helps us with a sense of celebration, and his response made me truly feel the specialness of his historical church organ. Happy holidays, everyone. Okay. So remember, if you enjoyed this podcast today, don't forget to let us know by clicking the like button on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to follow the Curious Reader podcast. That way you know when our next episode is available. In our next podcast, we will discuss Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. It's a book that explores the paranormal, also a new thing for me, and features LGBTQIA diverse casts of characters. So that concludes our podcast for today. We'd like to leave you with some final words from musician Josh DeRocher. Thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book. the amount of just the the sheer amount of sound that it has the capability to put out. So going from, you know, in, in that tradition um, in the Christian tradition right now is the time of Advent where you're kind of preparing for that, you know, the glory of, of Christmas. Right. So right now when I'm, when I'm improvising at church to kind of get ready for a service, I'm playing things that are a little bit more contemplative, um, things that are kind of more comfortably in a minor key, which is going to give you that kind of more mystical sense. And, and then as you build to that Christmas service, you know, literally all the stops will be pulled out and we will fill the, fill the, the space with the sounds of joy to the world and, um, hark the herald angels sing and, and I guess that was the sense. Um, I try to imagine, you know, early pipe organs in the 1600s and 1700s and in cathedrals in Europe and, you know, peasants walking by who would have had no access to any sort of sounds like that. And so the, you know, that kind of majesty that could come out of uh, an instrument. I mean, it must have just really honestly felt like magic or, or the sounds of angels coming down. So I think 
I guess that's how I would refer to it. I would try to set the tone really in, in this season, um, which is always a conversation we have uh, in those traditions of walking through grocery stores and all you're hearing is all I want for Christmas is you and, you know, the Grinch who stole Christmas. And it's just that secular Christmas right now. And and if you're in a, a little bit more of a religious tradition, you're in a introspective space where you're kind of getting ready for Christmas. And so I would try to help with that in that musical way. 